Ask someone on the street to describe what the occupants of a UFO might look like. The most likely response would be a gray, like those described in Whitley Strieber's Communion, and made popular in the 90s with their depiction on the X-Files. Or perhaps they would describe the shape-shifting reptilians, most commonly the subject of various conspiracy theories advocated by David Icke and others. Or perhaps they would assert that they look just like us. However, when reading accounts of those who claim to have encountered such creatures, the reports are more varied and much, much stranger. In 1955, a group of people on the Sutton Farmstead in rural Kentucky encountered 12 to 15 small humanoid entities with large, glowing eyes, long arms, and short legs who laid siege to the farmstead, but were held off with gunfire until the occupants could flee to report their encounter to local police. These beings would come to be known as the Hopkinsville Goblins, or the Kelly Green Men. In 1967, a 64-year-old farmer near Tuscumbia, Missouri, saw a group of three-foot-tall, gray-green entities emerge from a mushroom-shaped spacecraft at the edge of his farm. They had no apparent arms, large black eyes or goggles, and a mouth that came to a point, though it may have been some kind of breathing apparatus. The farmer reported feeling oddly unconcerned about the bizarre creatures, completing his chores before going to investigate, after which he would be stopped by some kind of force field. On being noticed, the creatures left the farm. These beings would come to be known as the Tuscumbia Space Penguins. In 1973, two friends were abducted by a group of beings that were five feet tall, with bullet-shaped heads, no eyes and no neck, just a slip for a mouth, and thin, conical objects in place of the ears and nose. Their skin was gray and wrinkled. They had claw-like hands, and their body tapered down to a single round leg, which ended in a single toeless foot. The two traumatized men reported their encounter to the local police. These beings would come to be known as the Pascagoula Aliens. We will not be looking any further into these events, at least not today. So what do these creatures have to do with those encountered by Pierre Fortunato Zanfreda, the subject of today's episode? Absolutely nothing. Like Zanfreda's experience, each of these encounters are wholly unique, with the beings described neither appearing before nor since the encounter. However, they do serve to illustrate that, contrary to popular belief, such one-off encounters are surprisingly common. Though the creatures could not be more different, there are common through lines in their experiences. In all of these examples, the experience itself was traumatic and confusing to those involved. And even with the benefit of hindsight and objectivity, understanding what occurred and the meaning, if any, behind it is elusive. At the center of it all are ordinary people, just like any you might meet in your day-to-day life, and it is through their eyes that we can begin to understand. To shed some light on this phenomenon, let's examine one such example of a wholly unique entity, that of those encountered by Pierre Fortunato Zanfreda, Piero to those close to him, and as he'll be referred to throughout the description of his experiences, for this is an intensely personal experience. Join us on this latest installment of Their Strange Skies as we look into the Zanfreda abductions. (laughs) 
note before we go further. The primary sources for this episode are almost all in Italian, and throughout, several quotes will appear. These were originally given in Italian and are translated to English. Care has been taken to ensure that the translations accurately relay the intent of the speaker, but different sources may give slightly different translations. There is also some confusion between sources regarding the specific days on which individual incidents occur. This appears to be because many of the incidents happen late at night and continued past midnight. So the date cited in the sources varied between the date on which it began or on which it ended. In this telling, the date on which the incident starts will be used. That bit of housekeeping out of the way, and without any knowledge of what is to come, let's join Piero on routine patrol in the hills near Toriglia, Italy. It is December 6, 1978, and he is 26 years old, working as a private security guard. This is a coveted, respected, well-paying job that allows him to provide for his family and affords him some measure of prestige. He is on a routine patrol in the hills near Toriglia, Italy, approaching the currently empty villa of a client, Dr. Ator Righi. It is then, without warning, that the engine, lights, and radio of the car cut out. As the car coasts to a stop by the side of the road, Piero notices four lights moving about the garden of Dr. Righi's villa. The car's malfunction forgotten, Piero exits the vehicle and draws his revolver and flashlight, though he leaves the flashlight off for now. He believes that he has spotted a gang of thieves, or at least trespassers, and means to ambush them. He silently creeps along a low rock wall in the darkness, moving in the direction of the lights, trying to stay out of sight. As he nears the lights, Piero crouches down low, preparing to jump out and confront the would-be burglars, when something touches his shoulder. He spins, revolver at the ready, but as he turns to look, he sees not a burglar, not even a human, but instead a strange being no less than ten feet tall, with green, wrinkled skin and yellow eyes. Struck with fear, Piero drops his flashlight only to quickly snatch it up and sprint off in the direction of his patrol car. Before he can make it to the relative safety of the car, a searing bright light appears behind him and he feels a rush of heat. As he turns to look at the source of the light and heat, he can see that it is a triangular craft that is emitting a blinding light. The craft is flying low and is so close that it obscures Pierrot's vision of the villa yet it is making no more sound than a dull hiss. Piero continues to run, and just before he reaches the car, is hit with an enormous blast of hot air, which knocks him to the ground. He scrambles to stand, and manages to make it back to the car, where he grabs the radio and presses the button to transmit. In a state of panic, Piero begins telling Carlo Toccolino, the radio operator back at company headquarters, what he has seen. Piero rambles incoherently at times, but manages to convey to Carlo that he is in trouble and needs help. Before Tocolino can confirm the details, the radio in the car loses power, just as it had done as Piero approached the villa. What happens over the course of the next hour is unclear. At some point, Piero leaves the car and moves back toward the house. 
It is here, roughly an hour later, that two of his co-workers, Walter Lauria and Raimondo Macia, find him lying on the frozen ground immediately next to the house. As Lauria and Macia approach, Piero leaps to his feet, out of his mind with fear, and points his gun and flashlight at them while yelling unintelligibly. Loria and Messia tell Piero to put down his gun, but he is too scared to obey their directions. In fear for their own safety, the co-workers rush Piero and take his gun away by force. It is at this point that both Loria and Messia notice that Piero and his clothing is hot to the touch, despite having been out in the chilly night air for more than an hour prior to their arrival. Loria and Messia lead Piero back to the cars and take him back down into town. During the drive, Piero is able to relay no more than what is already known about the events at Dr. Rigi's villa, and he continues to be in a state of fear and agitation over the experience. He is taken home, where he tries in vain to sleep. After a restless night, Piero's friend, Antonio Nucchi, commandant, of the local Carabinieri, the Italian military police, show up at Piero's house the next day. He's come to investigate reports that he had received the previous night. Dozens of citizens had seen strange lights in the sky, and word of his terrifying encounter had already reached Nuki. Understanding that something strange had occurred, and that Piero was both an eyewitness and known to be trustworthy, Nuki asked to hear what occurred at Dr. Rigi's villa the night before. As Piero tells the story, he is clearly afraid. And when Nuki suggests returning to Dr. Rigi's house to investigate, it takes some coaxing to get Piero to agree. With a sense of trepidation, they set out on the hour-long journey to Dr. Rigi's villa. When they arrive, Piero is visibly nervous, but he walks Nuki through the events of the previous night. They walk back behind the villa, toward the spot Piero first saw the lights, and it is here that they see a most unusual sight. Set into the ground are two circular depressions, each roughly nine feet across, in the shape of a horseshoe. They both remark that it would have taken a great weight to make such an impression, and there is nothing nearby that could have made those marks. Nuki and other officers from the Carabinieri perform a thorough search of the grounds and discover that one of the doors to the villa has been broken into, but nothing appears to be missing. Once the search is completed, Piero is taken home, where he tries to put the strange incident behind him. In the following days, he is hounded by members of the press from many papers. Most maintain a skeptical attitude toward Piero's claims, with some openly accusing him of concocting the whole story. Throughout it all, Piero steadfastly maintains his account is accurate, but goes out of his way not to talk to the press. And who could blame the guy? You've been through this wholly traumatic goddamn experience, and nobody wants to believe you. And, and that is one of the tough things about these experiences. Nobody wants to listen. Everybody wants to judge up front. But uh, it's going to get crazier from here, folks. So uh, just uh, brace yourselves here. To quote Piero, people call me on the phone at all hours just to play jokes on me. I don't know what it was that I saw, but I saw it. I'm not a liar. 
If I could have, I wouldn't have reported my experiences, now that I see the consequences. You will notice that his comments right there mirror people like Kenneth Arnold, who instantly regretted talking about their experiences. He's not the only one, but uh, more often than not, you will find people that do not want to come forward because they don't want to deal with the ridicule. There is one journalist who believes Piero, Rino Stefano, from the Il Corriere Mercantile, a daily paper based outside Genoa. In the days after the event, Stefano would go on to write the most detailed account of what Piero experienced, and would gain Piero's trust through his non-judgmental attitude. Another person who had Piero's trust was the owner of the company he worked for, Gianfranco Tutti who publicly stated many times that Piero was a good worker and not the kind of person to lie. With this vote of confidence, Piero returns to work patrolling the hills and the neighborhoods in and around Genoa. In the weeks after the event, even as the media attention on this case died down, Piero cannot shake the feeling that there is more to his encounter than he remembers. He is disturbed by the hour of missing time that occurred from the time he radioed for help and the moment Lauria and Messia discovered Piero on the frozen ground near Dr. Rigi's villa. Stefano urges Piero to make an appointment with Dr. Mauro Moretti, a trained psychotherapist and hypnotist, to try to discern what happened. Piero agrees, and they make an appointment for December 23rd. While under hypnosis, Piero recalls being abducted during the missing hour, and taken to a location that he remembers only as being incredibly warm and bright. He also recalls having conversations with the large green beings he encountered, who spoke to him through some kind of translation helmet they placed on his head, rather than in Piero's native Italian. They tell him that they are from the third galaxy, and they will be returning to Earth soon, in greater numbers. Yeah, that's not scary. <sighs> These things are... So freaking creepy. You're going to find out how creepy they are. A couple days later, on the rainy night of December 26th, Piero is on routine patrol near the mountain tunnel between the towns of Bargagli and Ferriere when his car is suddenly surrounded by a thick fog just as he enters the tunnel. Without warning, the car ceases responding to Piero, moving on its own accord. In a desperate attempt to regain control, Piero jams the brakes and turns the steering wheel quickly back and forth, without effect. He attempts to call for help on his radio, but the tunnel prevents him from reaching anyone. And so the car continues at a quick speed. Just as it exits the tunnel, Piero, now in a panic, grabs the radio again and calls to company headquarters for help. He frantically relays what is happening until he loses contact with headquarters just a few seconds later. The car continues to move on its own for roughly another minute until it suddenly comes to a halt by the side of the road. As it does, the car is hit by a blindingly bright light, which causes the interior of the car to heat up. At this, Piero's entire demeanor changes. With a previously unknown calm, he picks up the radio and relays. The car has stopped. I saw a bright light. Now I'm getting out. 
In the presence of the blinding white light, events become unclear. Some time passes before additional guards from Piero's employer reach the scene, finding his car by the side of the road with the headlights still on. Surveying the scene, one of Piero's co-workers, Emmanuel Travanzoli, sees Piero running across a nearby field, scared beyond reason. Travanzoli and another co-worker chase Piero down and tackle him. They immediately notice several unusual things. Piero is in shock, shaking and crying, and babbling incoherently. His clothes are completely dry despite the rainy weather, and his head is hot to the touch, particularly above the ears. Between sobs, Piero manages to say, They say I must leave with them. What about my children? I don't want to. I don't want to. Disturbed and confused, Travanzoli calls the Carabinieri. As the Carabinieri arrive on the scene, more inexplicable details emerge. First, the hood of Piero's car, despite being subject to a sustained downpour at night, is hot to the touch, as if the car had been sitting out in the hot midday sun, the car's interior being similarly hot. Officers find impossibly large boot prints, some 20 inches long by 8 inches wide. For reference, the largest shoe size on record worn by any person is only slightly larger than this, the size 37 AA shoes worn by the nearly 9-foot-tall Robert Wadlow, the tallest man ever to have lived. Additionally, a section of uprooted plants with long, treadless grooves lay in a semicircle a short distance from Piero's car. And when the officer examined Piero's revolver, they discovered that all of the bullets had been fired. But when questioned about this, he could not recall having done so. As they were driving away, Travanzoli's vehicle died shortly after pulling away, and Piero suddenly asserted that whatever abducted him was still present, but now invisible. That's fucking terrifying. After restarting his car and continuing a short distance, it died again! Damn aliens, man. What is it with the cars? Leave them alone. Leave them alone. After this, Travanzoli was able to keep the car running. Travanzoli drove Piero to the local hospital, where at the urging of his employers, he was examined by Dr. Giorgio Giannotti, a neurologist who said of Piero, the man is in a state of shock but he is perfectly sane. With this unnerving proclamation of his sanity, Piero was released from the hospital and returns home. You gotta kind of give it up to this guy because he keeps going back to work every time, even though every experience happens to him at work. Uh, Zanfretta is kind of a badass. Mad props, dude. Mad props. On January 3rd, 1979... The Carabinieri, also having now investigated two separate inexplicable incidents involving Piero, wrote a short report titled, Report on the Sighting of Unidentified Flying Objects by Piero Zenfreda. It contained all the details up to that point, including the broken door at Dr. Rigi's villa, and that several items were found to be missing, including two taxidermied birds. The report was then submitted to the local magistrate's court for a determination on how to proceed. 
It's unclear when the details emerged about Dr. Rigi's two missing taxidermied birds, but the most likely scenario is that Dr. Rigi reported them missing to the Carabinieri himself. Uh, it's never really clarified as to how that came to light, but eventually Zanfretta is going to uh, recount this uh, through hypnosis. As word of Piero's story spreads, he favored privacy, despite his rising celebrity. Though he didn't have supporters, such as his employers and the reporter De Stefano, most assessed that Piero was, was either mentally ill or perpetrating some kind of a hoax. It is under this cloud of suspicion that Piero agrees to undergo a second round of hypnosis by Dr. Moretti. And in an attempt to prove his honesty, the session is televised live on January 7th, 1979. During the hypnosis, Piero talks in a low whisper, but is clearly audible. He describes what happened to him on the night of the 26th. He recalls medical tests being performed on him by large green creatures, but could not elaborate on the nature of the tests. He further remembers that while the creatures appear to possess advanced technology, their knowledge seems to contain curious gaps. Piero recalls that the beings do not know how his gun functions, and in an attempt to determine how it works, one of the creatures discharged all of his ammo into some kind of odd material within the craft. Yeah, it's weird. Curiously, he did not hear the gun being fired, uh, but he did see the creature actually firing it. When Piero compares the great height of the creatures to that of a giraffe, he is amazed to find that they don't know what a giraffe is. They're clueless aliens, man. Not the kind of cool aliens you want to be chilling with. They don't know nothing. They know nothing about Earth. The helmet he previously wore to translate for him causes extensive pain, and the environment on board their craft is both incredibly bright and very hot. Piero was clearly afraid as he remembers this, reliving the pain while under hypnosis, and repeatedly implores the creatures not to take him to their planet, but return him and leave him alone. Piero is returned to his car. He can feel the sensation of light and heat as the craft leaves. When asked to describe the craft by the hypnotist, Piero recounts a flat, triangular craft with a gray body. Piero then recalls the bright light that lifted him up into the craft, where he was placed into a large room full of switchboards, with ten or more of the large green creatures all looking at him. The creatures communicated with him from a light that emanated from their mouth. The room he was in appeared to be larger than the craft could allow. Kind of a TARDIS situation happening there. Which is something that keeps coming up over and over again. Hey, this craft looks small, but it's bigger on the inside. It's clear that the aliens love Doctor Who. Even if they don't know what giraffes are, they love the fuck out of Doctor Who. Surrounded by the large green creatures, Piero now remembers looking at them closely. They are more than ten feet tall, with green skin, luminous yellow eyes shaped like triangles, and what appear to be red veins showing through their forehead. Sharp protrusions jut out on the side of their face, and their skin is wrinkly around the neck. 
They have some kind of mechanical device over their mouth. Their arms and legs are normal, though their fingers end in long nails with something circular on the ends. And regarding their feet, he only remembers that they're huge. Again, nobody remembers the feet, man. Nobody remembers the feet, ever. The hypnosis session ends with Piero remembering that the creatures come from far away, but that they do not want him to say where, and that they will return when he least expects it. Dr. Moretti, seeing Piero's distress, and in trying to give him some peace, tells him to forget everything he has remembered during the hypnosis session, and to experience serenity and tranquility instead. It is in this state that Piero wakes up, remembering none of what he had just relayed. I'm going to include a link in the show notes to a video of this session. It's on uh, DeStefano's YouTube page, and holy hell, it's wild. It's about an hour long, uh, but definitely worth the watch, and it's uh, got English subtitles on it. Though Piero intends this public display to put to rest any claims of its truthfulness, it instead has the opposite effect. Those who believed him presented the session as the definitive word on his truthfulness, while those who believe he is lying claim the entire session was fake to drum up publicity. With no resolution in the court of public opinion, Piero returned to his quiet life. He would continue to lead that normal life until July 30th, 1979. On this night, he is on a routine motorcycle patrol in a residential area of Genoa, referred to as the Quarto. The details of what happened next, as with previous encounters, are unclear. His co-workers find his motorcycle on the summit of Mont Fosse, some eight to nine miles away from his last known position, and Piero himself running in a blind panic some two miles away from his motorcycle. How he got to that point is unclear, as the single road to the summit was patrolled by some of Piero's co-workers, and they had not seen him or his motorcycle pass. As before, his co-workers find him and transport him home. Understanding that once the news of his latest encounter gets out, he will again be thrust into the spotlight. Piero contacts Professor Marco Marchison, who, at Piero's request, uses sodium pentothal, a barbiturate thought at the time to be a so-called, quote, truth serum, and hypnosis to try to gain more information about what had occurred during the missing two hours after Piero disappeared from the Quarto area until he was found running several miles away. While under hypnosis and under the sodium pentothal, Piero remembers the encounter as being much the same as his previous encounters. He was taken on board the creature's craft, being subjected to an examination, but now he remembers being told more of the creature's motivations and history. During this encounter, Piero meets a so-called prince called Almach, who relayed to him the truth behind his experiences. Almach identified his people, the large green creatures, as the Dargos, and said they had traveled 4,000 light years to Earth to study humanity and see how they are made. And to make friends! Dude, you're coming to Earth, you're 10 foot tall, and you're really freaky looking, and you, you require a translation helmet. And you want to make friends? 
I think you need to work on that first. I may be some lowly, petty human being, but you're you're scaring me. You're scaring me, dude. Piero remembers being told that the Dargos did this because, according to Almach, their home planet was destined to explode and that the Dargos would then need a new planet on which to start over. They were planning to do so on Earth, where they would build a great dome city. Piero remembers that Almach expressed great interest in the Earth and its inhabitants, though displayed a curious lack of knowledge about life itself relaying that they had taken two animals from Dr. Rigi's villa, only to discover later that they were not alive. Almach then delivered a warning about the dangers of atomic weaponry. So this is the point where uh, the two taxidermied birds go missing. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. The, you got these aliens rolling up into some frickin' doctor's house, and uh, they take two taxidermied birds thinking that they're alive. That's, that's kind of charming, I'm not going to lie. Despite the questionable combination of barbiturates and hypnosis, this account, along with Reno De Stefano's reporting, would do much to convince a significant segment of the populace of the veracity of Piero's story. Over the next several months, Piero would undergo several psychiatric and physical examinations by a variety of doctors. All report that he is of sound mind and body. Meanwhile, Piero continues his work. He would go back to a normal life until the night of December 2nd, 1979. On this night, Piero is out on a routine patrol when he pulls into a self-service gas station near downtown Genoa. What happens next is unclear. Piero goes missing, and just like with previous events, his co-workers begin searching for him. While the search is underway, Two cars containing four of his co-workers are in the hills outside Genoa. They see an object flying in the sky that had the appearance of a cloud. No sooner had they noticed it than two beams of light shot forth from the object, immediately disabling their cars in a manner that mirrors the way Piero's car was disabled in this first encounter. The four men exit their vehicles and try to get a better look at the mysterious object. Frightened by what they are seeing, one man draws his revolver and fires a couple shots at the object, which has no discernible effect. Don't shoot at the UFO, dude. You you don't know what that damn thing's capable of. Don't engage like that. It's not cool. They continue to observe it until, after several minutes, the object moved out. They continue to observe it until, after several minutes, the object moved out of view after which the puzzled and frightened men resume their search for Piero. As in previous encounters, Piero is eventually found and returned home. The next evening, December 3rd, Piero meets again with the hypnotist and psychotherapist, Dr. Moretti, who performs a hypnotic regression on him. In this state, Piero remembers being at the service station when he hears a voice calling to him from the shadows, beckoning him to come near. Piero explains that he experienced a psychological compulsion to obey, and so he walked toward the voice. As he walks into the shadows, he sees the man behind the voice. Piero describes him as a human, though strange, with a bald, egg-shaped head 
a checkered outer shirt or coat, and an inner metal garment of some kind. Piero was led back to his car, which was then struck by a bright light and levitated up into a cloud-like object, which then entered into a huge spacecraft. Piero remembers the spacecraft being so large that he describes the interior as being like a busy city, and he remembers seeing the whole Earth out a window. Piero was given a tour of the spacecraft by the egg-headed man, who explains to Piero that he is to serve as an intermediary between Piero and the Dargos. On the tour, Piero sees several large cylinders containing other strange creatures, such as a bipedal frog, a large bird, and a primitive-looking human, all of whom were immersed in a strange blue liquid. While being shown around, Piero remembers hearing gunshots, and despite being able to see Earth from out the window, the egg-headed man acknowledges the shots to be from one of Piero's co-workers shooting at the craft they are in. Again, your friend's up in the craft. Don't shoot at it. What if you brought that shit down? What if this is like some men in black fucking situation? You got that big ass gun. You bringing them down. You could kill your coworker. That's not cool. Don't shoot the UFO either. Don't lick the UFO. Don't shoot the UFO. This discrepancy between Piero's seeming location and the source of the gunshots cannot be reconciled, and Piero does not comment further on it. During conversation, Piero remembers being told that the creatures had been in Spain the night before, terrorizing locals, as a UFO is you know, said to do. Why they were chasing around locals in Spain is left unexplained. Why would they explain it? These... these these motherfuckers just rolling up on people. That's not cool. Quit terrorizing people. After the tour, he is taken by the egg-headed man to see Almach, who gives Piero a crystal globe, inside of which is a golden pyramid. The sphere showed him visions of the Dargo's daily lives and their culture. Almach explained that the device is to educate humans in the way of the Dargo's. He was given instructions to give it to a university professor whose name Piero could not clearly recall. After some exploration by Dr. Moretti, Piero remembered that he was to give the globe to our UFO dad, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. That's right. We're bringing Hynek into this situation, only briefly, but he's here. He's mentioned. Let's play six degrees from Hynek and we can get to the Zanfretta abductions. Piero attempted to refuse them, saying that he just wants to live a normal life, but Almach insisted, and Piero eventually acquiesced. With this device in hand, Piero was sent back to Earth on the light beam, just as he had entered the ship. His hypnosis session over, Piero returns to his quiet life. Two days later, he reads reports in the local newspaper about a Spanish man who, the night before his abduction, was chased by mysterious glowing objects. Piero connects this with his latest abduction and what the egg-headed man told him. We're going to take a quick break to hear from my good friends over at the What If Podcast. If you've never heard me mention them before, or if you've never listened to the first meltdown, you need to go stop this. Go subscribe to their pod. Yes, I said pod, Brian. Deal with it. 
and come back. You back? You back with us now? You back with us now? Okay, good. Hey, it's Spencer. Hey, I'm Ryan. From the What If Podcast. We are indeed. And we, every week, talk about all kinds of weird shit, like cryptids and UFOs and aliens. Yeah, we ask a hypothetical question and uh, make jokes about ourselves and all the world of weirdness uh, every week on Tuesdays. Yeah, so if you like some of the stuff that Rob talks about here on Our Strange Skies, you might want to check us out at whatifpodcast.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. Love you, Rob. (laughs) Bye, Rob. Miss you. Bye, Rob. As these events are published in the media across the Mediterranean, the report from the Carabinieri submitted to the local magistrate's office bounces around between various parts of the Italian justice system before being returned to the local Carabinieri with a terse declaration, no crime committed. And with that, the Carabinieri would close their investigation. Piero's life is turned upside down again on the night of February 14, 1980, when he is sitting at home. To quote Bill Murray from Ghostbusters 2, Valentine's Day. Bummer. Piero inexplicably feels compelled to get in his car and drive around. During this time, he is able to maintain radio contact with headquarters, and his co-workers, along with local journalist Rino Stefano, begin an immediate search for him. They locate Piero a short time later, in the hills surrounding Genoa, a good distance from his house, suffering from hypothermia and in a state of shock. Piero is able to recall nothing of the events of the night after leaving his house. While searching the area... Piero's co-workers speak with a local villager who tells them that just minutes before they arrived, he saw a large, round, luminous object fly away from the location where Piero was found. The searchers fail to find tire tracks in the soft ground, indicating that Piero's car could not have been driven to its present location, and that the car is quite hot, as observed in previous encounters. They take Piero home. Dude ain't crazy, but take him home every time. I I feel so bad for this guy. He's going through freaking hell, and he doesn't understand why he's the dude being picked to give J. Allen Hynek some crystal ball or some shit. I, I feel for him. I really do. The next day, Piero meets with Dr. Moretti and undergoes another hypnotic regression. During this session, Dr. Moretti finds Piero to be uncooperative. Unlike his previous sessions where Piero required little prompting. With effort, though, Dr. Moretti is able to get Piero to remember some details. A short time after leaving his house, Piero saw the egg-headed man standing by the side of the road. He remembers feeling compelled to pull over, after which the egg-headed man gets into the car. After driving for a short time, the car was hit with a beam of bright light, and after which he could no longer control the vehicle, as it came to a stop by the side of the road. His contact with the entities was cut short by the rescue team's arrival. What the villagers saw was their craft departing, but before Dr. Moretti could inquire further about the actual events on board, Piero begins to talk in an unknown, 
guttural-sounding language that Dr. Moretti did not recognize. At this point, Dr. Moretti just loses all control. Piero is taken over, and he's attempting to contact these creatures with his brain. And he speaks in a low, growling voice. Um, and this quote is, is one of my all-time favorites. Question with negative answer. Tixel, you can't work out anything in a case like this. To believe or not to believe doesn't mean anything. Each thing in its own time. With effort, Dr. Moretti is able to regain control, but the hypnosis session yields no further information. Almach, he's a quotable dude. You see that shit? He's totally quotable. After this last incident, Piero is now placed under close surveillance for 24 hours. Nothing out of the ordinary occurs until August 13th, 1980. On this night, Piero experiences the same inexplicable compulsion to go for a drive, but he is intercepted by co-workers before anything further happens. Though he did not know it at the time, Piero would have no further contact with the creatures. The car thing is always fascinating to me because these people, like in the David Stevens abduction, Stevens and uh, Glenn Gray, they both had the urge to just get up and go drive. And this is something that is reported over and over again. It's also reported that something else eventually takes over control of the vehicle. So I don't know what it's about, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely fascinating. The repeated encounters clearly caused great distress to Piero. His previously black hair turned to gray, then white within a couple years. He gained significant weight, and he went on to leave his job as a security guard that he had fought so hard during his encounter to keep. These incidents would affect more than just Piero, though. One of the guards who witnessed a mysterious craft on December 2nd would go on to commit suicide due to the stress of seeing the object. Piero has interviewed numerous times over the years by many different people about his encounters and undergoes hypnotic regression again and again to try to uncover more details about them. These sessions yield little new information. One of the most common questions the hypnotists ask him concerns the ultimate disposition of the globe that Piero received and its true purpose. Even under hypnosis, Piero is uncharacteristically vague and evasive about it. He mostly ignores the question. When interviewers ask, he claims to have destroyed it, to have hidden it in the hills around Genoa, or that it had been reclaimed by the entities that gave it to him. Nobody really knows what happened to it, and it's kind of one of those things that is a strike against him a little bit. Multiple hypnotists remarked that it was as if he had a mental block around anything to do with the object, and state that it's as if an outside force is preventing Piero from answering. Yeah, that seems um, interesting to say. Okay. As to its purpose, Piero says varyingly that it was a kind of television that displayed the entity's culture, 
that it was a training device for their eventual arrival, and it was a beacon that, when activated at the appropriate time, would facilitate the landing of the entity's craft. In 1984, the encounter seemingly over, journalist Reno Stefano would write and publish the Zanfretta case, the definitive account of the strange encounters and the primary source for the information presented here. It's a killer book. Like, the cover of the book is the footprint, like the really giant footprints. And if you listen to me on Astonishing Legends recently, the beings on Ripperston Farm also had giant footprints. They were also, like, they weren't as tall as these beings, but they were about eight feet tall. So, tall beings and big feet. So, let's let's get into the theories here. To start, let's examine the skeptical case for the Zamfretta encounters. Uh, in particular, the idea that this is all a hoax that Zamfretta and possibly others are intentionally perpetrating. This accusation was leveled at Zamfretta as soon as reports of this encounter began circulating. And I think that's just kind of the default for a lot of people. This theory states that Zamfretta, with the help or at least the complicity of his co-workers, created all the physical evidence documented by the press photos and the carabinieri and concocted a story of alien encounter and abduction. The motives for this are varied, with suggestions that Zanfretta could later either write a book or sell his story to a local paper. This, by all accounts, never came to pass, and though journalist Reno Stefano would write a book a few years after the encounter ceased, there is no evidence that Zanfretta or any of his co-workers profited in any way from it. Another angle sees Zanfretta seeking notoriety, though this is at odds with his reluctance to talk to journalists. Zanfretta, even according to skeptical journalists, did not care for the publicity, and the idea that he was seeking fame, notoriety, or attention is at odds with his actions. For Zanfretta to hoax this requires the complicity of his co-workers and the doctors who examined him, or at least their credulity, none of whom ever asserted in the years since the incident that Zanfretta was being anything less than genuine. The idea that this was an intentional hoax can clearly be put aside permanently. At a minimum, Zanfretta clearly believes what he is saying, as do those that gave their own corroborating reports. However, just because Zanfretta believes what he is saying does not make his statements 100% true or anything. With a skeptical eye, we can, at most, say that Zanfretta had four separate incidents where he disappeared for a time, only to be found later in a state of clear distress. Medical doctors who examined him immediately after the incidents would note the psychological signs of extreme stress, and psychiatric professionals would note he exhibited no sign of mental illness or deception regarding his recollections of the events. I find it interesting that they never asked him to take a polygraph test, and I'm kind of glad because fuck polygraph tests. They don't help in anything. And at this point, you can't even admit them into court, so what the fuck good are they for? They're not, so good on them for not having to do that. 
Which brings up one of the primary skeptical arguments for this case, the reliance on memories recovered via hypnotic regression, in particular the memories recovered of the later incidents. It is not necessary to attribute malice or even intent to assert that the hypnosis sessions caused Zanfretta to create false memories of the incidents, as they all operated on the assumption that something did, in fact, occur. In particular, the use of barbiturates in conjunction with hypnosis calls into question the entire methodology used by the various psychiatric professionals who would work with Zanfretta. This brings to mind another more well-known case that also includes hypnosis, that of Betty and Barney Hill. In that case, as with Zanfretta, much information about what possibly occurred was recovered by hypnosis. However, regardless of the value of any information learned during hypnosis, in both cases, hypnosis was employed because each had an experience that they could not explain or remember. Like the Hills, that Zanfretta experienced an initial traumatic event is undeniable, though exactly what occurred is an open question. So leaving aside anything recovered during hypnosis, or that could potentially be influenced by what was recovered during hypnosis, that still leaves the physical evidence. We have large depressions in the ground, not previously present, a broken door, and missing taxidermied animals at the summer house of Dr. Rigi. We have repeated reports of Zanfretta being found dry and hot, despite being out in cold and rainy conditions, as well as Zanfretta's car. We have reports of vehicles inexplicably stalling and losing electrical power, both from Zanfretta and his co-workers. The presence of massive boot prints, uprooted plants, and large treadless grooves around a semicircle in the area where Zanfretta is found. We have Zanfretta's motorcycle on the summit of Montefascia, despite evidence that seems to suggest that he didn't drive up the only road that led up to the top of the mountain. All of this points to the undeniable conclusion that there is a physical aspect to these incidents. The physical evidence itself would be difficult, though not impossible to fake, at least without a conspiracy involving the Carabinieri lying about certain things, such as the condition of Zanfretta and his vehicle. Given how quickly independent witnesses arrived on the scenes of various incidents, the only possible way it was faked was well in advance. And that runs counter to the assertion that Zanfretta is a knowing participant of a hoax. It also begs the question why Zanfretta would go to such lengths to hoax physical evidence, then act as he did when the evidence was discovered. Why would you hoax this shit and then just not want any attention from it? The skeptical explanation, then, that Zanfretta had a traumatic experience in the woods around Dr. Rigi's home. His mind either misremembered or invented the story of seeing a large, green creature as a cover for what happened, or that he was surprised in the woods by one of the burglars and, in the ensuing confusion, panicked and thought he saw something that he did not actually see. In search of answers, Zanfretta then visits hypnotists who, though well-meaning, accidentally cause Zanfretta to create false memories of the large green creatures and of being abducted by them. Subsequent events are then explained away as the product of an unwell mind, 
with Zanfretta blacking out and ending up far away from where he was when the blackout started. And with each subsequent hypnosis session causing Zanfretta to subconsciously invent additional details, using the false memories of the initial event as fodder. Physical evidence is explained away as either having mundane explanations or being individually hoaxed, potentially by reporters eager to generate sensational stories. Zanfretta then is something of a tragic figure. He believes what he is saying and genuinely has memories of what he claims occurred, but those memories are false. The shifting explanations are, to him, what he honestly remembers, and are just a product of his mind. The explanation, however, requires some significant hurdles to overcome, particularly when it comes to the testimony of the additional eyewitnesses, such as the one villager during the Valentine's Day event in 1980. With this, let's examine the non-skeptical case, which has two primary directions, the cryptid hypothesis and the experiencer hypothesis. In the cryptid explanation, as the name implies, the creatures that Zamfreda encountered on the night of December 6, 1978, were some manner of unknown animal. Prior to undergoing hypnotic regression, Zanfretta reported just a brief, terrifying encounter when one approached him as he crept through the woods towards Dr. Rigi's summer house. After which he panicked and ran, radioed for help, then passed out, where he was discovered by his co-workers. Through this lens, we then view Zanfretta's initial encounter with the large green creature as more in, de- as more in line with a Bigfoot encounter than an encounter with alien beings. He then may have confused the details of these creatures through repeated hypnosis sessions. Subsequent events are dealt with as a fallout from the first, exacerbated by memories created during hypnosis. Much like the skeptical explanation, this requires numerous leaps to explain the physical evidence away and also fails to explain the events in totality. To do that, one must consider, independent of the information recovered during the hypnotic regression, the physical evidence, and the testimony of outside sources. In particular, the reports of lights seen leaving the areas where Zamfretta was later located, and the inconsistently hot physical state of Zamfretta and his vehicle must be considered. The evidence would seem to point to the physical reality of Zamfretta's abduction and transportation. Additionally, the reports of lights in the sky, seen by many local residents and at multiple encounters, are consistent with other reports of cryptids being sighted near unidentified aerial phenomenon, the Mothman perhaps being the most well-known of these. What relationship, if any, these cryptids have with other phenomena is hotly debated, and Zanfretta's encounters do not add any additional information to the discussion. Now we get into what we call the swamp gas from a weather balloon that was trapped in a thermal pocket and reflected light from Venus hypothesis. I love Men in Black so much. In examining the full circumstances surrounding Zanfretta's experiences, in particular the information he relays while under hypnotic regression, it's hard not to question the factual accuracy of the information Zanfretta presents. Information like the creatures being from the quote-unquote third galaxy. A description that is really no description at all. 
or that the aliens want to build a dome city and initiate contact with humanity, neither of which have come to pass. However, it is simultaneously hard to deny the reality that something happened to Zanfretta repeatedly over the course of several years, and that Zanfretta believes what he is saying. The difficulty, then, is reconciling the two positions. A potential explanation comes from taking a further step back and looking at Zanfretta's encounter within the wider context of what our UFO dad would call close encounters of the third kind. In the opening, we briefly heard about the Hopkinsville Goblins, the Tuscumbia Space Penguins, and the Pascagoula Aliens, all one-off encounters with fantastical creatures. In each case... And with Zanfretta's, the descriptions are unique to those particular times and places. These creatures were never seen again. That creatures like this could exist, unknown and unseen, for any significant length of time, begs belief. Thus, whatever they are, they must come from somewhere. Be here only for a short time, and then leave just as quickly, or else additional sightings would surely occur and something with the capabilities to get out here once could likely get here again. So any potential explanation must consider not just why they visited Zanfretta, but also why they did not visit anyone else before or since. A solution can be found by looking at, of all things, Zanfretta's hypnotic regressions, and those of others such as Betty and Barney Hill. And I swear to God, if you have not listened to Barney Hill's hypnotic regression, holy shit, it is terrifying. These demonstrate not, as their proponents would like, the amazing power of the human mind to recall what was not remembered, but instead the power of the human mind to creatively shape and record subjective sensory experiences according to expectation. Zanfretta's recollections contained tantalizing hints that what he was experiencing did not necessarily conform to objective reality. That the craft he was taken into was larger on the inside than on the outside, and that he could hear his co-workers shooting at the craft, despite being able to see Earth from a porthole, are just two examples. But this is not entirely a perceptual phenomenon. Zanfretta and his car were both observed to be incongruously hot by independent observers on multiple occasions, something that would be nearly impossible to fake given the time frames involved. Also, the lights seen by independent observers and the physical impressions in the ground would additionally seem to point to there being at least some physical aspects to the encounters. The idea that what Zanfretta saw was shaped by his experience and expectations is not an uncommon assertion within UFO sightings, and has been advanced by such luminaries as Jacques Vallée. Zanfretta saw all manner of strange beings, but it is perhaps telling that, on later encounters, he was led around by a human-looking entity after he came to understand that the creatures he was seeing were intelligent. This brings to mind Woodrow Derenberger's encounter with injured cold during the Mothman flap. In Zanfretta's own encounter with an injured cold-like entity, perhaps he perceived the entity that way, because that's what he expected to see. This phenomenon is perhaps most memorably put by screenwriter Rich Haddam in The Mothman Prophecies, when Richard Gere's John Keel analog 
is talking on the phone with Indrid Cold and asks what Cold looks like, to which Cold replies, it depends on who's looking. Pierre Fortunato's and Freda's encounters present one of the most bizarre tales in the history of Close Encounters. In the end, Zanfretta believed he was abducted by the Dargos, being from the, quote, third galaxy, led by the Prince Almach to prepare humanity for the eventual return and friendship, after which they would build a great domed city. He believed that he himself had a special part to play in all this, though he was only a reluctant participant in the Dargos' plans and just wanted to be left alone. As ridiculous as it sounds on the face of it, it is difficult to question Zanfretta's belief, even if the factual accuracy of any of that information is very much in doubt. Throughout all of this, he has only been seeking the truth behind the baffling encounters. Though that search would ultimately lead him to places that he would generally consider to be unproductive at best, and counterproductive at worst. They said that they would return one day, when Zanfretta least expected it. Though he is reluctant to discuss it, rumors have recently begun circulating that Zanfretta had begun having encounters with the mysterious creatures again in the recent years. After a near 40-year absence, that would certainly qualify as least expected. Zanfretta is now in his 60s, and still resides in the general area. Without additional information, we may never know just what happened to Zanfretta in and around the city of Genoa between December 6, 1978 and August 13, 1980, but perhaps soon we will learn more. This episode was researched and written by Rory Roloff and was edited by me. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or their strange guys. Think brave we trust.
Media.